Yeah, by the way, I, in preparation, you know, I listened to other interviews you did and talks I could find on YouTube. And um, so I listened to your interview on Everything Hurts with Dan. and <laughs> That um, was lots of fun, James. actually. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, not to brag, but they said that you were the first Australian guest and you were on episode 56. Uh, you will be episode 53 or 54 for me. <laughs> you will be my fifth Australian guest. That's so funny. I've, I've noticed this funny thing in uh, just to, uh, related to this in a way that um, when people would cite my work, like on registered reports in their papers, I was always for ages in the 40s. <laughs> it's strange. <laughs> like if you look down the reference list, I was always like between 40 and 45 in so many papers. And I, it's just, it's kind of uncanny. In empirical papers or? Oh, all kinds of papers. I was just like, yep, 43, 44, 47, 41. Uh, I'm sure it's coincidence, but it's, it was just like weird. Like it tells you something about the point in a structure of an argument that people start inserting registered reports. Like they have to set the scene with everything and then they add it. And so it comes after they've cited a few dozen references already. But yeah, yeah it's yeah. kind of like, yeah, that was a, a funny observation. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, I mean, you already mentioned res reports, and that's what we want to talk about today. So I guess to maybe slightly set the scene for the conversation, we want to talk about register reports. Um, we'll also talk about your book a bit, probably interleaved here and there, because I guess it relates to a lot of the discussion around register reports, or register reports can help with a lot of the problems that you address in your book. And yeah, something random's probably going to come up. Good. Um, I like the random stuff. <laughs> yes, I'd like to go fairly deep on register reports because I guess I've already read about them for a while. I haven't done one myself, but I've been in peer review. I've peer reviewed twice for it or helped peer review. Um, so I have a little bit of an insight. But yeah, as we mentioned before we started recording, there are still many people who don't know what a register report is. I think a fair amount of my audience also comes from neuroscience, where I think it's maybe slightly less well-known than in psychology would be my guess. So can we maybe just start by you providing a you know, two to three minute summary or however long you need? Sure. What a register report is, what it's good for, and maybe what the difference is between that and pre-registration, so people don't get confused. So we're all familiar, hopefully, with the, the standard way academic publishing works and peer review works. So re the regular article track that uh, authors are, are, are familiar with involves you completing a piece of empirical research and then once it's finished and you've written your entire paper, then you submit it to a journal and it's peer reviewed. Okay. And reviewers look at various different aspects of the work and the editor looks at, they look at the, the rationale, the methodology, but they're also looking at the results. Okay. And they're making a judgment in many cases, in most cases of um, how uh, great an impact those results are to the field. How important are those findings? How novel are they? And this introduces a significant risk of bias into the peer review and publishing process because the decision to accept or reject a paper through that regular track isn't based solely on the quality of the work you're doing, the rigor and robustness of the methodology. It's also based upon the findings. And this introduces an existential risk for many areas of science because if you start making judgments about what studies go into the literature according to their results – then you run the risk of only publishing studies that produce attractive results or nice results or significant results, positive results, so on, novel results. And so we can we risk fooling ourselves into chasing shadows, seeing, seeing things that are not there. Uh, and our registered reports were brought in as a way of addressing this problem because we've learned over the last 10 years that the bias, the publication bias, 
and the reporting bias that we see in the regular literature, driven by this incentive structure for authors to produce beautiful results, leads to irreproducibility and lack of transparency in, in science. And registered reports were brought in about 10 years ago as a way of addressing this problem at source by splitting the review process into two parts. First, the reviewers just look at your design plan before you've done the research. So your rationale, your theory, your methodology, all of the details, all of the nitty-gritty parts that go into planning a really good study or set of studies. And they perform an in-depth review on that, and so does the editor. And if it passes muster at that stage, usually after revision and so on, uh, the article is awarded what we call an in-principle acceptance, which guarantees that the final paper will be published regardless of the outcome, provided the authors follow their protocol, okay, and that their interpretation is evidence-bound, which is to say that it, it's, it's consistent with the data that they've, they've reported. And what this does is it eliminates outcome bias and publication bias, because the decision to accept or reject a paper is made before the results are known. Therefore, it's not possible for the results of the research to influence whether or not the article is accepted or not. And this has, a, I think, a great, you know, when we introduced this back in 2013 at Cortex, I felt that it had a great deal of promise. There was already a lot of discussion about the benefits of pre-registration as a tool for reducing bias. And, and registered reports take pre-registration and they kind of put it on steroids because with, with normal pre-registration, you, you write a protocol before you do your research you post it into a public repository. It's not peer-reviewed usually. It just sits there. It, there's no guarantee that a journal will publish your article regardless of outcome. It's just there, and it has some benefits, but it's only part of the picture. With a registered report, you take that process, and then you add to that peer review and in-principle acceptance regardless of outcome. And so what we're doing is we're galvanizing the entire scientific process to make it more rigorous, more, more bias-controlled. Um, and we're already seeing the benefits. So, you know, some of the preliminary meta-science that's come out shows that registered reports are more likely to produce negative outcomes. So, so we're more likely to find out that we're wrong in our predictions when we remove all of the biases that lead us down the garden path. They're peer reviewers who, who perform blinded judgments of pro registered reports versus regular articles tend to rate those the registered reports higher on virtually every category of scientific evaluation. We find that they're cited about the same, and we find that they tend to be more computationally reproducible, which is to say that the, the actual data that's archived, along with the papers, tends to be uh, more reproducible, that the outcomes tend to stem more directly from the data. So, you know, so far, so good. It looks like the initiative is working, as we intended. And so, you know, as we go forward from here, we need to be thinking, how can we make this better? What are the, are there any, you know, unintended negative consequences? How can we make it more accessible and more open and um, more, even more rigorous than it is? Mm -hmm. Thanks. Um, I think you also mentioned, you know, a lot of things that I'd like to talk about later. For example, like how you can improve it, what some potential problems are, all this kind of stuff. Before we get into the, the details of red reports themselves, I'd like to take a slight, like, biographical detour and ask kind of like how you got into the whole open science movement i mean that was kind of my question and then i i think i kind of read how should we say the origin story of chris chambers uh working for open science in your book uh you wrote quote my earliest experience with publication bias came in 1999 with the rejection of my first scientific paper the results are only moderately interesting cited an anonymous reviewer 
the methods are solid, but the findings are not very important, said another. That sounds like you were, from your very first article, you were looking for something like a registry report. Well, I used to think that, um, I think probably like a lot of junior scholars, I went into science thinking that the registered reports philosophy held across science. I, 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 it would never have occurred to me at that point in my career that we would even need this. I assumed that um, the way science works is that you would design a, a, a study, run it robustly, and the actual outcomes you get would never be the basis of a decision by a journal to publish or not, because to do so just seemed completely irrational. Do you want to know what the truth is or do you want to know what's sexy? And do, do you really want the scientific record to be only full of findings that some reviewer considers to be interesting? Is that how we're going to land probes on other planets? Is that how we're going to solve climate change? Is that how we're going to invent new drugs to cure diseases? I don't think so. And so it, that was a shock to me. And I was working, of course, in a relatively trivial area, you know, of, at that time of psychophysics compared to, you know, those big questions. But I still felt somewhat betrayed, I think, by the academic system. And it, it, um, it very quickly cured me of my naivety. And so um, for the next, you know, 10 years, I played the game as we were all taught to play it. This was before the open science kind of revolution, I suppose, had really taken hold in my area, at least. And so I, uh, we, I did what I needed to do. You know, I, I, I played the game, played it pretty well, frankly. And it was only later in my career, I suppose, about you know, ten years, fifteen years later, that I, I realised that I was just as idealistic, actually, underneath as I was originally. It's just that I'd kind of been, I'd kind of been just, I don't know, following the rules, but I never really believed in them. And so, uh, what triggered? I accidentally fell into all this open science stuff just through frustration, um, having articles rejected again and again because of null results or complicated findings or findings that didn't lend themselves to easy interpretations from rigorous research that we'd done. And I felt like there were other people talking about it as well. It wasn't just me shouting into a vacuum. And so I thought, you know, let's do something about this. Um, and as I wrote in the book, you know, I got a paper rejected from a, a specialist journal in my area because of null findings. And uh, I wrote a very short blog post. I just started blogging back in those days. It was 2012. The blogosphere was a thing. And I wrote this blog post just saying how I, I was just had enough of this system. This is not the way it should be. And I've, I've, we've all been living under the yoke of this system for too long. And an editor named Sergio Della Sala, who's the editor, chief editor of Cortex, wrote to me and said, would you like to come and join our editorial board? Because this is exactly the kind of philosophy I would like to promote as well, that we should be judging science based upon quality, not based on findings. And you know, that's where registered reports came from. And, and they were launched at Cortex in 2013 at the same time as a couple of other journals also independently had the same idea. It's very interesting, actually, I think, that how often in science good ideas come from different people at the same time. It's like there's a kind of undercurrent that pushes us all in a direction and then we all come together. And so this format then developed from there and since then has been steadily uh, growing it's been adopted by, I think, around 350 journals now and is now, um, as we might discuss later, is now moving to the supra-journal level. So it's going beyond journals as well, which I think is very exciting. Yeah, definitely. Um, just to mention it, maybe for people who are new to the podcast, I'll put references and links to 
anything we mention, like talks or papers and that kind of stuff in the description of the podcast. Uh, so you don't have to look for them. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't realize that this started with a blog post. What I kind of assumed was that you, you know, as you said, you kind of had played the game and you were, I assumed you were like accepted in the field, you'd become a, some sort of editor at Cortex. And then you said like, hey, can we do this thing? And then after, I don't know, you wrote an application to the Cortex board of editors, I don't know how this works, um, that then you published the blog post kind of describing what you wanted to do. Um, is that common at all that editors reach out to academics who publish a blog post or did you know each other or I don't know. It no, seems really... Well, we did. Yeah. It's a good, uh, it's not common, but we, I did know Sergio from, uh, from previous interactions we'd had in Australia through my, um, my old supervisor out there. Uh, and what I came to learn about Sergio is that he's, he's very idealistic as well. And he wants to, he wants to try and repair neuropsychology and neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience as well in this way. And, uh, you know, and some kind of corrective measure is needed. And, you know, in the last 10 years, we've really lifted Cortex from, from a, a very traditional uh, neuropsychology journal into one that is, has a very similar thematic focus, but is now very much focused on open science as well. So we've really led the way, I think, and, and the field has moved as well. But, uh, you know, there was that blog, one blog post I wrote, which, which prompted Sergio to contact me. And then there was another one I wrote just after joining the Cortex editorial board, proposing this idea of a registered report that we could do, we could launch this article type. And in doing so, I think, you know, we could try it and see what happens. And maybe uh, we could do something good for the field. And I, I made the decision to publish that letter as an open letter rather than just making it a behind the scenes kind of uh, request, because I felt like there needed to be some feedback from the community about this initiative before launching it. I wanted to get peer review, essentially, from lots of people. And I got it. And we've got hundreds of people commenting on it and making it better. But I also wanted the journal to be accountable for the decision that it made one way or the other. Journals have a, an institutional responsibility to the community to uh, do what's best for the community, not what's necessarily best for themselves. And so I think it's important, regardless of the personal relationships we have between editors, not to get too cliquey and to always ensure that we, we put that public mission first. And so I felt that uh, you know it needed to be it needed to be an open letter, which was controversial at the time. But as you know, history shows it was probably the right decision. Hmm. Uh, just because you mentioned you think it should be less cliquey and that kind of stuff, you're now editor or in editorial boards. I don't exactly know what all the terms are precisely of several journals now. How do you kind of ensure that uh, it yeah doesn't become too cliquey and all the kind of stuff you just mentioned? Well, I think you know. As I say, by, by making sure you center the public mission, so <clears throat> putting transparency at the top of the agenda, this is there's a number of ways of doing this. First of all, you know I think social media is very good for for uh, reaching people, making clear the policies that you're implementing, making clear why you're doing things, seeking feedback and discussion with the community as you do things, trying to avoid making too many decisions behind closed doors because I think that can be uh, that can reinforce traditional and you know power structures which don't perform very well and, and exclude a lot of people from decisions that affect their lives and their careers and the scientific record but also by thinking beyond journals you know and so so you know I, I've, I've spent the last five years surrounding myself with people who are smarter than me and are very good at 
different parts of this process. And so we work collectively. I work with a lot of different people on lots of different things and moving beyond journals and seeing the registered reports process as something that, that the philosophy transcends any individual journal, I think is also beneficial. Yeah, I think that's one of the most interesting parts that I definitely want to talk about. I guess that we probably have to talk about register reports a bit more before that, but that's definitely, um, I think I saw a talk of you at uh, UKRIO or something like that. There's a there's a video on YouTube and you mentioned that there and I was like, oh, this is this seems really cool. <laughs> so yeah, I definitely want to talk more about that later. So as I, you know, I mean, I invited you to talk about register reports because in principle, I'm a very big proponent of the idea. It seems, you know, as you said, like common sense and what you should do, etc. But as as I said, I've also done peer review and been involved with it twice. You know, there are obviously some problems that you address in your talks and papers and that kind of stuff. And I just wanted to briefly talk about kind of the extra load involved for peer reviewers. Because I mean, I, I don't know, the one I did or I helped out with, it was always helping supervisors. One of them was fairly straightforward. They kind of done a study and then they were the the as you say, they used that as a very good pilot study and then did a kind of reduced, they kind of wanted to reduce the, the space of questions they could ask and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then kind of did a second thing of that. That was pretty straightforward to review. And it almost felt like, why are you like, almost just do it? Like, this is a perfect study. Good luck with it. Um, another that I helped out with was a lot of work. And it came back a few times. And at some point, I just went like, I oh, got this thing again. Uh, <laughs> and... Um, yeah, how can you make, I guess like the, the, the initial problem is that you, as a peer reviewer for, in it, for a single paper, you have to do it multiple times, right? Whereas otherwise you would, I guess, typically get it once and review it. So I'm just curious, how kind of, can you make that process more efficient that it doesn't become, even if it's better in the long run, that in the short run, you go like, oh God, a register report peer review. <laughs> this is going to be a lot of work. I can't be bothered. It's interesting, I think, because in theory, there's nothing special about reviewing a registered report compared to reviewing the front end of a regular paper. And I think if you, in a way, I think it shows us one of the problems with regular peer review, that if you get a paper with problems in its design, but it's got results in discussion, why would you consider that to be any less work? than a registered report with the same problematic design, but without the results. In both cases, you could say the problem here is the design. And I think there are two reasons for that. One is that with the, with the regular paper, we get distracted by the results. And maybe because it's all done and dusted, we're more likely to just hit the reject button and move on if it's flawed. Or potentially, if some reviewers don't like the findings, it's a quicker road to the bin with a regular paper if it's all done and dusted. And so it feels easier, but it's actually incredibly wasteful because all that work for nothing if it's going to get rejected again. And also, it's probably going to go back into the peer review system again. So it gets rejected at one journal and the authors go, well, we've got to publish this paper. So they send it somewhere else. How many reviewers end up seeing it in the end? 15, 20? It's just the work is spread out amongst lots of people. Now, with a registered report, you're getting it sooner. You're still doing the same evaluation in theory of design and theory and everything else, but now you haven't got the results. So maybe you feel as a reviewer like, oh, I have a bigger responsibility here. I can't just hit reject. Or maybe you can, but maybe you feel like you shouldn't. Maybe you feel like, you know, I've got an ability to be constructive here and to help them. And so it may make you come back. 
what you can do though is as a reviewer you can always say i've had enough like i've done my bit i've helped them enough and that's as much as i'm prepared to do and you can leave it to the editor to make a decision the reviewer should never feel compelled to keep coming back and back and back and back and in a way it's a sign of I think poor quality editing for an editor to continually go back again and again and again to a reviewer. I think one of the skills of editing, well, it's a difficult one, it's a risky one as well in some cases, but one of the important skills of an editor is to know when you've burdened your reviewers enough and to say, right, now that the can is on me now and I have to decide, if is this paper going to make it or not? And in theory, a registered report is more efficient for that reason because you can fix problems before they arise uh, if you do, re- if I do as an editor reject a paper, I've potentially saved the authors quite a lot of work that would be for nothing anyway, because they would go through, if they did the study without going through the registered reports process, they, they might encounter the exact same objections a year later and the whole stuff, the whole thing goes in the bin. Some junior scholar's career goes down the toilet with it. Potentially it's much more efficient. So I wonder, you know, what it says to us. What, it, what does it tell us? about the operation of the regular peer review system for a registered reports review process to feel like more work. I think it probably tells us more that the regular review process is not working properly, more than the registered reports review process, that there's something wrong with it. Yeah, I think one one kind of reason for why it I think is or can be at least for a single paper more work is as you mentioned you kind of have a bit more responsibility because sometimes you go this is not good this is not good you just mention it but I feel like in a reg report you feel like there's a bit of an obligation to say like well you could do this you could do this whereas um, you know often there can be I don't know not necessarily or sometimes even fairly minor tweaks right that can actually make the paper much better but it did feel like yeah, it feels almost more collaborative to me than right. with other ones because you go like, okay, there's something here in this paper, but we have to help the people actually make it good rather than telling them that your idea is good, but you know, do another study. And this is right. I, I, and this is actually for me, I think one of the strengths of the format. I think the peer review process is unnecessarily adversarial for regular papers. It's like a, it's like a trial by fire. You know, you've done your work and you you hope your results are clean enough. And you hope that the reviewers don't notice any flaws in your design and you run the gauntlet and you hope you pass. And I think, you know, a lot of the problems that we have in science uh, stem from all of the tactics that authors employ to get through that process. And it's inefficient and it's, uh, it, it's, it gets nasty and it's, you know, I don't like it. In fact, you know, since editing registered reports, I, I dislike going back and editing regular papers because I, I feel like, oh, this again. Whereas when I'm editing a registered report or even reviewing one or even writing one, I feel like I'm entering into a much more productive dialogue with experts in my field who, if I'm an editor, are advising on a paper. There's no obligation on them to, to do all the work for the authors. Reviewers can draw the line and say, okay, I'm going to make some suggestions. I'm going to spend however much time that I spend on peer review regularly. I'm going to spend that amount of time and that's it. That's perfectly fine. And Within that constraint, which I think every reviewer has the right to apply to their life and to their career and their work, you know, there's a huge benefit for a constructive dialogue. I've seen amazing examples of reviewers literally saving studies through simple comments, picking up nuances and, and, and subtleties and, and, and complexities in designs, coming up with control conditions that authors never thought of. There's a huge untapped resource there that gets missed in regular review because it's all about 
getting the paper through. You know, all of the biases that authors are using to get their results significant. All of the all of the subjective judgments from editors about what's novel and all this sort of crap. It gets in the way of the real job, which is evaluating the quality of the science. And I think Registered Reports Review does that more thoroughly. Yeah, I agree. I guess, yeah, I never thought about it that way, but I guess in, an, in a in a regular review, it does sometimes feel like you're find, trying to find the flaws, whereas in a registered report, you're trying to find them and then help them. Right. <laughs> so it's it's not too late. Yeah, it's, exactly. a, it's a gift to authors to be able to solve problems before it's too late. I, I can't tell you how many times I've had authors write to me after getting stage one in principle acceptance and saying, we really value, this is the first time we've done this. And what we found really valuable was being able to fix this issue and this issue before we ran the study. And reviewers also can write and say, I, was, I really enjoyed being a part of a process where I could, I could actually assist constructively rather than doing a post-mortem on a study that was flawed from the beginning. Uh, and statisticians as well you know, also enjoy being part of this process from the, from the beginning. There's so much more value to it. And it's so much, as you said, it's more collaborative. This can present certain challenges when reviewers and authors want to work together because you do need to maintain a certain independence between those roles in order for the governance of the whole peer review process to be, to be robust. But there are solutions to that as well that we've employed. But overall, I think it's, a, I think it's just a superior form of review. And I, I look forward to the meta-science that will test that hypothesis more definitively because at the moment it's all based on instinct and, and what I've seen, but that's not really evidence. We need to see the evidence that it actually does work better. Are you running some of those studies or are you saying I'm leaving that to other people? I'm not running them myself. I, I struggle for the time to do that kind of in-depth meta-science because I'm spending so much time on the initiative itself. And also I think there's value, honestly, in that meta-science being done by people other than me. Like I often feel I have, uh, I have my own biases about registered reports. I think, they, I think they're great. And for me to do meta-science on it, I always feel there's a risk I could fool myself in a way into seeing benefits that may not hold up. So I think it's better that researchers who are less invested in all of this do that meta-science. Um, Hilda Bastian writes very compellingly about the importance of separating out the advocates from the, from the, uh, from the people who test the effectiveness of an intervention. It's, if you bl start blending those, then it, it doesn't go in very good direction. So I, I, the, but the data is all out there, you know. There's many journals now that have open review and they publish registered reports and regular articles. And so there's plenty of opportunity for meta scientists to collect all of those peer reviews and do analyses of them, do co content analysis, thematic analysis. They could have reviewers review the reviews. There's all sorts of opportunities in which we could start asking that question. So I'm hoping somebody will do it. Yeah, yeah. I guess it probably is better to have someone else do it because if I see a paper by Chris Chambers saying, Registered reports are great. It's like, well, <laughs> he would say that, wouldn't he? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, uh, I, and I, you know, and it shouldn't that we've got to be careful about not lionizing individuals or you know being very careful with with putting anyone on a pedestal here. For for an initiative to survive in the long run, it's got to be bigger than any one person or any one small group of people. If we're trying to carve out a long term future for science, then it needs to be something that we all do together. And every great reform in scientific history that has always succeeded on the basis of being something that many people push and believe in and, and, and demonstrate the effectiveness of. 
So I think it's very important that we keep a strong element of independent meta science going because it's much more convincing if somebody other than me says, hey, registered reports work. Um, and, you know, that's equally if somebody comes in and says, these are the problems, as Tom Hardwick has done and others have done, that these are the imperfections and these are the issues that need to be solved. That's really, I find that extremely valuable. Then that prompts me to go, right, what can I, what levers can I pull to improve the policies to, to solve those problems? And so it creates an opportunity for a sort of feedback and dialogue between researchers to try and fix the system as we go. Yeah, I guess the most convincing thing is if you can satisfy the critics, right? The people right. who actually are kind of against it and you can say, well, I've solved your problem. Exactly. There's nothing more, to be honest, there's nothing more satisfying than having somebody, this has happened a few times, who was deeply critical of registered reports at the beginning, come back to me five or ten years later and say, you know what, I really like this initiative. Or you see, they don't even tell you. They just start submitting registered reports and you're like, yes. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, like another, I guess, common um, potential critique is that it, you know, it takes more time upfront and that kind of stuff. And is it feasible for people on short contracts, that kind of stuff, right? And I thought maybe rather than using it in the abstract, we could maybe use an example of a project that I'm thinking about um, and kind of, yeah, work through a concrete example there. So, I've got one year left on my contract um, until my when I have to finish my PhD. And I have one project where I've already done a few studies and found an effect, I think, that's fairly robust and interesting. And kind of there's, I definitely want to do some follow-up studies, but the question is, you know, do I do them as separate papers uh, or, and that's one possibility I'm thinking about right now, should I maybe use the initial few studies as a kind of, I don't know exactly what you would call this, um, but for my stage one submission and say like, look, we've done all of this stuff here. Uh, there's still a few questions here and we want to number one, replicate it and answer those questions. And number two, generalize uh, the findings that we found there because we found them in a specific context and we want to generalize them. In a way, I think Registrable would be a really nice format for that, especially because, you know, if we run a second study, it would be nice to get constructive feedback about potential errors we made in the first version so we don't repeat them and that kind of stuff. But one, you know, big question I have is, you know, I've got a year. This is a behavioral study, so it's it's not the most complicated analysis. So it's not, you know, not suggesting doing like a clinical fMRI study or something. But um, I don't know, how should I think about deciding whether I have time to do this as a retro report or not? Hmm. It's a good question. And it's a very um, common scenario. I, I hear from a lot of early career researchers that they're on short-term contracts. They want to use the initiative, but uh, they're not sure if they've got time. So, you know, you can assume that if you submit a complete manuscript for stage one review, it'll take a few months at least to go through the poll process to get in principle acceptance. And this is a problem, okay? This is one of the, this is perhaps the biggest limitation of the initiative. Now, one can argue, and I have argued this over and over again, that you save that time at the end. Because you probably do. Because you're more likely to get accepted at the first journal you go to. And then once you finish your research, it's a much, much quicker path to getting it fully accepted. So there's that. However, it doesn't change the fact that you do have to invest that time at the beginning. And there's no guarantee that you'll get stage one IPA in principle acceptance. So, you know, you could spend months and still end up with, with, no, with no guaranteed paper. In that respect, it's no different to regular peer review. It's just that it's happening at a point in time where there's, you haven't done the research yet, so it slows you down. 
So there's a few options here. One option is that, like you've described, you, you submit a stage one manuscript that has your initial experiments in it, where you lay out your ex- preliminary experiment, one, two, three, whatever it is, and then you propose a definitive experiment to seal the deal. There might be some overarching hypothesis that emerges from the previous work or some theory you can test, and you can submit that, and you can, if it sails through, then you can publish it all in one big registered report at the end. So, you know, you can, as, you, as you mentioned in the beginning, you can have preliminary studies within a registered report. That's fine. Now, of course, you still end up going through this stage one review process, which can take time. This is why uh, when we launched the peer community in registered reports, which is a super journal platform for peer reviewing stage one and stage two preprints, we introduced a track called scheduled review. The idea here is that with scheduled review, you plan the review process in advance at a, during a narrow range of dates in the future before you've even written your stage one manuscript. And what the editors do, what we, we call them recommenders at Peer Community, is they line up the reviewers in advance, just as they would with a regular paper, but they're doing it in advance, right? So the reviewers are booked into review between this date, like maybe a five-day window in the future. And... This saves a great deal of time because one of the one of the things that people don't realize about the peer review process is that one of the major delays with regular peer review isn't the amount of time that reviewers take to do reviews. It's the amount of time that editors take to find reviewers. You know, you, the review process is creaking. Reviewers are under a huge burden. Most reviewers decline review invitations just because of workload. And so it takes time. You have to ask a lot of people to get enough reviews. If you do this in advance, you save a great deal of time because by the time that stage one manuscript is ready in, say, six weeks, reviewers are ready to go. You're ready to go. Bang, you submit. Reviews are back in a week or two. And it's a much more rapid process from there. Our first scheduled track submission at PCI Registered Reports took five days. Five days to go from initial submission to interim stage one decision. Not because anything about the stage one review process was light or not thorough, it was just as detailed and thorough, and the reviewers spent just as much time as they would have normally looking at the paper. It's just that they did it during a planned window, okay, rather than it just being so reactive. You know, we're used to getting these review invitations and like, oh, can I do this? Okay, hit accept. And then I haven't really planned. This isn't something I factored into my diary, so I'll do it when I when some free time comes up. <clears throat> reviews are late because they're busy. It's it's an inefficient way of organizing the review process. It's much better, in my view, to schedule it. And then people stick it in their diary, they ring fence it, and then they, they spend that time on it, and bang, your decision comes back. And so far, that's worked really well. And we've had a ton of scheduled track submissions, almost all of them from early career researchers on short contracts, because they, they, they want to try and parallelize the process. They write the stage one manuscript at the same time as the reviewers um, are being found. And you might ask, well, how do the reviewers know what they're going to get? And this is solved by uh, asking authors to submit a one-page pro forma at the very beginning, which doesn't take much time to prepare. It's just like, you know, uh, rationale, method, brief description of methods and hypotheses, brief description of analyses you're going to run. Something that can be smashed up in an afternoon, or if you've done some careful thinking about the design even quicker. That's then used by PCI registered reports 
to find reviewers. So reviewers look at that. They don't review it itself. They just use it as a guide. Like, is this in my domain, etc. And so based upon that, we line the reviewers up. So that's the, that's the big way you can save time at stage one if you're on a short-term contract. Yeah, that, that was one of the, of the PCI register report. Uh, I don't know exactly what you call this approach. That was one of the kind of two main things I really liked. Um, the other being then the, that you can choose a journal if you get uh, amongst some of them. Yeah. If, if, um, you get the in principle acceptance. But, um, one thing I'm wondering about is just, how easy is it to estimate how long it's going to take you to write that stage one report, especially if you're an early career researcher who maybe hasn't written a paper yet or only like one or something? Because I've noticed that some of my papers have taken slightly longer than expected to write. And yeah, so would you already basically have written stage one largely and then you write the thing and say like, yeah, do you know what I mean? Rather than because it also seems weird if I say this thing, I'll be finished in six weeks and then I'm not. And then they're yeah. like, hey, so where's the paper? Accurate planning is key. If, if authors are late, then the whole process collapses. And it hasn't happened yet. But um, I think, I mean, this is, this is where some self-knowledge is important and good supervision is important for junior researchers as well. So, you know, you need a good supervisor who is able to assist and guide and um, that you're realistic about your time that you've got available and also the challenges that you face in, in writing, particularly if you're doing it for the first time. You know, there are challenges, but we provide detailed guidance on how to write a registered report. There's so much out there now. The peer community and registered reports guidelines are very detailed. There's plenty of example registered reports available across many fields now. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of published registered reports that can be used by authors as a, as a template. So armed with that knowledge, a good supervisor and some knowledge about your own workload and challenges that you, that, you know, you face as an individual in terms of writing and so on, then it comes down to just careful planning. And I don't actually know of the said schedule track submissions we've had. I don't know how much of the manuscript has been written at the point that they submit their initial snapshot, their initial pro forma. I just leave that for them to decide amongst their own teams. And over time, we'll learn as to how good people are at planning this. You know, um, I suspect it'll be self-selecting to some extent. I think researchers will be more likely to use this track where they're more confident that they're able to meet their own deadline. And you can choose this, right? Pe peer community and registered reports doesn't say it must be in in six weeks. What we say is you nominate a date in the future that is at least six weeks from now. It can't be any earlier in time than that. So it has to be at least six weeks from now, but it could be eight weeks. It could be 10 weeks. It could be longer if you want. And we will work to that timeline on our end in terms of lining up reviewers. And so you, it's up to you to decide what you believe is feasible and realistic on your end. Mm -hmm. Before I get to the kind of you being able to choose the journal part, I'm just curious, what is this PCI thing? I haven't quite understood. Um, I hadn't heard of it before. Um, and I'm not entirely sure what it is because it, the register reports part is just one part of it, right? Right. So we're all familiar with peer review, and it's normally something that is uh, undertaken by journals, and journals usually owned by publishers. Therefore, the regular, standard, traditional peer review process is undertaken under the management of publishers. But it's all done by the academic community, pretty much. And most uh, journal editors, apart from the set of professional editors that run certain journals, most journal editors themselves are also academics. So the vast majority of peer review is managed 
coordinated and conducted by the academic community, even though it's run through journals and publishers. What the peer community in initiative does, broadly speaking, beyond registered reports, just the broader initiative, is it says there's no reason why all any of this has to happen through publishers. And by doing it through publishers, we're kind of uh, we're surrendering a lot of control over uh, our own destiny because we're giving them something that they consider to be added value at no cost. And then they're charging us for it later in terms of accessing our own work. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to just give that up as charity to publishers who are pulling massive profits. So what Peer Community In does is it says we're going to do the, the – it's a completely free, open – and transparent process where it it organizes peer review of preprints. So outside journals, beyond journals, above and beyond journals, it performs peer review. And those reviews are made openly available on the peer community and website, whichever particular community it is. There's lots of them. And then there's an opportunity for authors to take their their reviewed preprint uh, to a journal. And um, for regular PCI communities, there's journals which will accept without further revisions. They'll just accept those reviews uh, and, for, and journals can choose different levels of adoption and so on. But what it does is it takes back control of the entire peer review process. Um, and it, it basically recognizes that peer review is something that the academic community has always been doing. We've always done this ourselves. So there's no reason to gift it to the corporate publishing world um, and we should be doing this ourselves, and we should be making publishers actually earn their profits. We shouldn't be donating them in the way we're doing. Peer community and registered reports is one of these communities. Okay, so there are lots of there's about fourteen or fifteen different PCIs, and most of them are discipline specific. So you'll have like a a PCI in um, evolutionary biology or a PCI in paleontology. So most of them you can think of as kind of discipline specific layers. Peer community and registered reports cuts through all of them because it's not discipline specific, it's format specific. So it's a community dedicated to the registered reports format. And so you can think of it as a vertical column that kind of cuts through all of the scientific disciplines and, and non-scientific disciplines. In fact, PCI registered reports is, is open to all scholars in all areas of research, even the humanities. And so what PCI registered reports does is similar in philosophy to what the other PCIs do. We receive preprints, so authors post their preprint on a preprint server, or maybe they, as an embargoed uh, document on the open science framework. We don't actually, <clears throat> we're not a journal. <clears throat> we don't publish articles separately. We don't, you know, have a, we're, not, we're not a journal as such. What we do is we receive the preprints, we peer review them, and then we publish what we call recommendations based upon those peer reviews and revisions. So it goes through the same rigorous review process as a, as a registered report will do at a journal. It's just that there is no journal as such. Instead, once authors get a stage one in principle acceptance from us, they can then take their uh, pre-accepted preprint and they can take it to a journal if they want to, or they can just leave it as a preprint if they wish. It's peer-reviewed. It's up to them. If they want to take it to a journal, they have other options now. We've got a fleet of what we call PCI Registered Reports Friendly Journals. These are journals which um, guarantee to publish any stage two registered report that was uh, received a positive recommendation from PCI Registered Reports. And they make this commitment 
without requiring further scientific peer review, which is a really big step. So our review process is replacing the journal's peer review process. So that means that authors are in a position to choose from this fleet of PCIRR-friendly journals. They can choose which journal they want to go to, which puts the author in the driver's seat. No longer are you going from one journal to the next, hoping that the journal will publish your article. Instead, you get your positive recommendation from PCI registered reports, and then from the list of eligible journals, you can choose whichever one you want. Later, at the end, at the end of stage two, you can choose. Um, All of the eligible journals will offer IPA when we do, and then you can choose. You can also just choose any other journal, right? So you don't have to go with those journals. You can submit to any journal you like. They may want to do extra review or not, um, but you can you have that power as well. It gives authors much more control over their destiny to be able to take the review process away from publishers and do it ourselves and then give it back in a controlled fashion, a manner that we control. That's the strength of it. It, it's, um, it opens everything up. The reviews are open. They can be signed or anonymous, but they're always published. It gives authors control over the outcomes of their work, so where they want to publish it and how. And ultimately, it help, it'll it help us to transition away from this kind of dependence that we have on corporate publishers, especially in the long run. Because, you know, we if we control peer review, then we control publishing and science in the, in the end. One thing that I'm s- slightly confused by, or I wonder whether it's going to work, is... So when it comes to basically the, the you know, so you know how, how many is it, like 13 journals or something like that, that are part of this? Um, there's, there's, yeah, there's, I think there's about 15 different communities, yeah, and they're growing all the time. I know, sorry, I meant like the ones that would accept the register reports. Oh, there's 25, yeah, there's 25, 25 journals at the moment and growing. Yeah, so like one thing I was wondering about, like it, doesn't it at some point, I was wondering like why journals would want to do this because it seems to me at some point you have a you know you have a ranking of prestigiousness of the journals and then whoever's the most prestigious in a field is going to get basically all of the things I would imagine so like if you say nature human behavior says okay we're going to do this you know it has the nature label on it so why would you then want to publish that in any other journal so it seems to be almost like I don't know as soon as there's like one journal that's clearly more prestigious than the others that then suddenly the others do you see what i mean like suddenly they kind of lose this transcends journal rank so one of the one of the uh what gives so let's let's step back from it what gives a journal its prestige its rank its mystique generally prestigious journals claim implicitly or explicitly that what makes us special is that our review process is more rigorous our review process is better in some way you know and there's there's this kind of underlying assumption that somehow the very same people doing the very same review will do it to a different standard based on the journal. And it's, I think it's a nonsense, and particularly the case when these journals don't make the reviews available and there's no way of actually verifying that this is the case. Um, prestige is largely fake. Um, and one of the ways we can reveal it to be fake is by taking back control of the peer review process itself so that the journal label is simply the label, right? If you, do, if you get a review through peer community and registered reports, all of the prestige and quality that is built into peer review, if you believe peer review does that, is done by PCI and it's available. For, you can read it all. And then the journal is simply the output. It's If you want to stick it in the indexed scientific record, there it is. And it won't be changed for the, if you're a PCI registered reports friendly journal. Now, you might think, 
what's the incentive? As you said, what, why would a journal agree to this? Why would they surrender control of the peer review process like this to an outside party? Why would they take this risk? And for this, you have to realize something about the culture of journals, which is that journals are run by editors. And editors are primarily academics. And academics are the same community that forms PCI. We're all the same people, right? And this is something that I think is really important to emphasize. When I'm talking to journal editors about peer community and registered reports, I'm talking to the exact same people that built peer community and registered reports, that we're all part of the same group. And so I've found that journal editors are actually really excited about this because they're not outsourcing to somebody else. They can join peer community and registered reports themselves as a recommender. So I think of it like joining the European Union. You're surrendering some sovereignty over your own laws in return for becoming part of a much larger community, which can have a much greater influence. So if you put yourself in the position of a journal editor at a, at a high quality specialist journal in your area, and I come to you and say, <clears throat> would you like to become a PCI registered reports friendly journal? In doing so, um, your journal will commit to accepting the recommendations of PCIRR without further review. And in return, you can become a recommender with us and you can have a say over what gets published in other journals, right? So we're taking all of that editorial expertise and we're pooling it in a way that, that is best for the community and also works for the editors. I mean, the editors themselves gain an influence over the scientific record that transcends the relatively trivial borders of their little kind of, you know, their, their little journal that they've got. And no journal is big. You know, very few journals are monsters. Most journals are quite small and, and specialized and dedicated to their field. And they can go beyond that now and have a much bigger influence. So I found that um, there's very little hesitation from many journals in joining because they don't see it as outsourcing. They see it as insourcing. They see it as, well, I can join and some of my editors can join. I gain expertise, like I gain the, the benefit of a, a community of editors who are already very good at editing registered reports and have a lot of experience. I can contribute my expertise. We can be part of something bigger. And we can also take back control of peer review, which is something, you know, editors, academic editors at journals don't love publishers. They do it because that's the only way. It's the only option available to them at the moment. Um, but they have no love for publishers. So I think uh, that's why we're seeing such support from PCI-friendly journals. By the way, is there ever any consideration of PCI to have their own journal or something like that? Or would that just be a silly, pointless thing? Or is it just a, not what you do? Or So the PC, PCIs aren't journals themselves, but there is a peer community journal, which was created recently, which offers the simplest track for any, any researcher. So any article that's recommended by any PCI can be published without any changes whatsoever in the peer community journal for free. It's a diamond open access journal. Um, and, that's, and it's completely free for everyone and free to access and read and everything. And so um, that's certainly an available option for researchers. Uh, but of course, and this is, this is the secret to making any change in the open science kind of a world is you've got to you've got to create options for people that are not too distant from what they're doing right now it's got you've got to create a path for people to use traditional journals in the way they're doing now but in a better way and this is where the other journals come in so for example 
you can publish in Cortex or Royal Society Open Science or BMJ Open Science or any number of other journals that are on our register reports friendly list in the same way as you can in peer the peer community journal. But these are more recognized names. And so there's obviously, uh, there's obviously a reason to create a transitional time where researchers might prefer to have their article published in a Royal Society journal than in, in the peer community journal. But you just create the options for people to choose. And, th and this is, you know, over time, I suspect, what will happen as PCI registered reports continues to grow and continues to become more popular is the name of the journal won't matter so much. Because that's not where the stamp of quality comes from. You know, when the peer review process is managed by P PCI registered reports and the article in the journal links to those reviews, the name of the journal becomes kind of pointless. It's just, it is there. And it will benefit from maybe, if that journal is more prominent, then maybe more people will read it. But beyond that, it, we're, we're breaking the, this kind of fake prestige label that somehow the name of the journal confers some magical quality on science, which I don't think it ever does. Yeah, no, I think I'm also fairly idealistic when it comes to these things. Every time I have like a paper preprint or something, I think, oh, do I need to submit this to a journal? It's fine the way. I mean, sure, I want people to comment on it, you know, get some some feedback from, from colleagues or whatever. But there's always part of me that goes like, maybe not submit, maybe don't submit this one. It's fine. Everyone can read it. It's a preprint. Well, you know, that's because you're a scientist. And this is what, uh, if we, I remember, I'll never forget going to a conference back in 2015 in London where uh, we were talking about all these issues and um, <clears throat> a CERN physicist gave a very impressive talk. He was like a traveler from the future. Particle physics is 50 years ahead on everything. And they basically live in the world of preprints and everything happens at that stage and all of the big scientific advances are made at a preprint stage and occasionally, you know, stuff that goes into journals, but it doesn't really matter to them very much. And that's kind of where we want to be as well. We don't need journals as signals of prestige and quality. We give it all its value. We give, we are the source, the arbiters, the evaluators. We are everything when it comes to quality. The journal is simply like uh, some typesetting and an index and a DOI. Yeah, I guess the, the, the idealistic, romantic, uh, well, ideal uh, would probably be Gregory Perelman, Perelman's, what is it, solving the Riemann hypothesis, whatever it was, and then just posting on an archive and saying, okay, I'm done. Right. <laughs> like that, I guess that is just like the optimal thing you can do. I have one kind of question, which uh, sounds negative, but is not negative towards you, but more towards how slow progress is, which is, I was reading, you know, if the editorials you wrote where in various journals you were part of Using register reports and that kind of stuff. And I said, I listened to your talks and that kind of stuff. And now you're talking to me and later you'll be talking in Mannheim. Do you ever get bored of talking about this? <laughs> like, never. <laughs> no, I, I never. No. I, I can talk about, I could talk your socks off, to be honest. Um, I, I could talk about registered reports for eight hours without a break. No problem. It's one of those things that I just think, I just think it's, um, it's got so much potential. And I've only just started, we've only just started to unlock what it's capable of. It can go, I mean, the minute you take out publication bias from science, you free your, the shackles are dropped from so many different corners. There's so many different restraints and stupid rules and incentives in there, which don't help us. And we can, I think it opens so many doors and peer community and registered reports is one of those because we've, we decided to tackle directly all of the, the negative points that have been raised, all of the weaknesses of doing registered reports in the journal world. 
we've tried to deal with with peer community and registered reports directly. And that's so, showing promising signs. And so I, you know, I can talk about this all day. And yes, there are frustrations. I'm always, I'm permanently uh, impatient. You know, I'd want everything to happen now. I want more journals to be offering this format now. I want, I want more early career researchers to have this option because I think it's liberating. So many researchers have written about the loss of anxiety they experience when they use this format compared to the regular article process. And <clears throat> many authors at Cortex have written to me and said, wow, I, having done this, I don't know that I'll ever be able to go back. It's kind of like if you had the option to fly business class, would you ever go back to economy? And that's how a lot of people feel. I think when they go through this process, they feel that it's, it's more efficient, it's more constructive, um, it's not biased against certain findings. And a lot of researchers stick with it and they decide that it's simply better for their career to do it. Um, and so I, the, this is why I can talk about it endlessly, frankly, because I think we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of what it's capable of achieving. Yeah, I think the anxiety thing is that must, as I said, I haven't done it yet, but it must be a big thing because, I mean, of course, you're partly nervous about the results when they come in because, you know, you want to be right. You know, you want to have, you want to have a correct theory or whatever that predicts something, you know. But there's, yeah, there's always this kind of thing like that you know if these results aren't interesting, then you can say goodbye to certain journals or it's going to be harder to, you know, all this kind of stuff. And that is, frankly, ridiculous. That 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 we that we we do this to ourselves um, is a it is just crazy, and I it's something that people outside science don't understand. They don't think science works like this. They think that that and this is you know going right back to where we, we talked about earlier. When I got into science as a uh, you know, as a twenty year old, I didn't ever imagine that that was the way science worked. And neither, do, neither does anyone else except people who are indoctrinated and sort of become institutionalized and they realize they have to play this silly game in order to, to keep going and to keep doing science. And we've got to break it. We've got to smash it to bits. And that's what, that's what we're trying to do. That's what registered reports are all about. I think that's a good note to end on then. Let's, let's smash stuff to bits. Yeah.